Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the paddocks. For this episode, grab your drink, your favorite food, maybe even a comfy blanket because it might be a long one. <laughs> this time, we're talking about Nico. On the episode, we have Melissa Ito with myself, Chelsea, and Hannah behind the scenes. And to start us off, I'm going to pass it off to Mel, who has a little background information on his early life. All right. So Nico Eric Rosberg was born on June 27th, 1985. He was born in Germany and is the only child of Finnish driver and 1982 F1 World Driver Championship winner. Uh, Kike Rosberg and German interpreter Jessine, uh, also known as Sina Rosberg. And fun fact, because of his parents' nationalities, Nico also has a dual citizenship. And he is also fluent not only in German and English, but as well as French, Italian, and Spanish. Um, this is because his father had considered those languages more important to know over Finnish and Swedish, which I find really interesting um, because I'm like, the more languages, the better, but that's me. Um, he is currently married to interior designer Vivian um, Seibold, and they have two children together. And now let's get into how his career got started. So because he has that dual nationality, he actually started um, in karting at the age of 10 under um, a Finnish flag. And honestly, his competitive spirit was evident from the start. Even it, There's actually a funny story because he even shed tears apparently when his dad beat him at tennis. And like for a kid to be upset because an adult beat them at a sport is just hilarious to me. But of course, um, that also was to his advantage because it fueled his fire to basically win a lot, especially early on in karting. And it also prompted his dad's support. Keke assumed the role of manager, leveraging his vast network of contacts, having previously guided careers of two-time world champion Mika Hakkinen, also from Finland. Um, and Mika actually was Nico's childhood idol. And because of this whole constellation, if you will, Nico swiftly ascended to the upper echelons of karting where he encountered Lewis Hamilton. And he um, developed to be one of his primary rivals. In 2000, the two teenage prodigies became teammates in the fiercely competitive Formula A karting championship. And although Hamilton had this innate talent and therefore often outperformed Nico, their rivalry was still very amicable and they basically fed off of each other a lot of times because they shared this ambition to progress in motorsport and that just forged a bond between them. And, lead, and also it led to, of course, shared experiences of youthful antics such as tossing a mattress out of their hotel room window, organizing impromptu foot races, <laughs> in corridors and indulging in pizza speed eating contests. Like that's how competitive they, they were. They're like, yes, we can be competitive off track, but let's speed eat a pizza and see who finishes first. 
And fun fact, they also trashed a hotel room at one point. I love the low-key foreshadowing of their competitiveness from a very young age to their future, um, because we'll definitely see how that plays out. Um, But going into his junior career at the young age of 16, uh, Nico had moved on to car racing by competing in three races for the 2001 Formula BMW Junior Cup Iberia, where he finished 18th in the Drivers' Championship with 38 points. Now, for the 2002 season, he drove for Viva Racing in the 2002 Formula BMW ADAC Championship, where he won the championship title with nine race victories and a whopping 264 points. Um, To me, that sounds impressive. So, yeah. Uh, And for winning the title, he was given the opportunity to drive the Williams FW24 during a testing session at the Circuit de Catalunya. And this made Nico the youngest person ever to drive an F1 car at that time. Now, moving on to the 2003 season, he did continue on to higher tier of the Formula 3 Euro Series with Team Roseburg. Then was driving a Delara F303 Opel car that he won at the Bugatti circuit and earned five podium finishes, leaving him an eighth in the championship. In that same year, he was given the opportunity to test a Formula 3000 car at the Circuito de Jerez as a preparation for a future F1 testing um, with Williams. And he, again, got the opportunity to drive two more times with Williams in a modified FW25A car to evaluate his ability to drive as a potential test driver. I mean, if you already did it like a few times, you would think they would give him the job. Um, and another fun fact about him, during the offseason, he was accepted into the Imperial College London to study aeronautical engineering, but he decided to commit to racing to his racing career as the courses interfered with said races. And finally, for the inaugural GP2 series in 2005, Nico initially wanted to drive for BCN Competition. competition. However, Art Grand Prix founders Nicolas Tott and Frederick Assort used a sales pitch presentation to get Nico to drive for them. He did pay a nice 850,000 euros to drive for the team, but he earned this um, series title with a total of 120 points. So I guess it was worth it then. And then, of course, moving on, in April 2005, Nico joined Williams as their second test driver. He was overlooked in replacing the driver, the team driver, Nick Heidfeld, due to the team not wanting to risk delaying Nico's career by a couple of years if he had a poor performance. Um, I found that interesting. I don't know about you guys how they I kind of want want to know how they thought of that reasoning and decide to do one driver or choose one driver over the other because I'm like it could affect either driver either way I mean we've seen it recently some other ones (laughs) yeah but at the same time I feel like Williams especially like since like 2000 basically since they became more of a backmarker team they've gone more the route of like developing drivers and basically they'd rather hold a driver back than push them too far too fast so I feel like that's that was like that around that time was that exact shift and I think his 
being picked is a perfect example of that shift. Yeah. Now that you put it that way, it makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Ido. Um, so, of course, by 2005, he did get signed a five-year contract with Williams, and he earned his first career points at the first race of the season, Bahrain GP, where he finished in seventh. He also earned the fastest lap, making him the youngest to earn the fast lap at that time. And he finished the 2006 season in 17th place with four points. So not so bad for a rookie. He got some points and at the first GP. By 2007, Nico was paired with driver Alexander uh, Worse, where during the season, Nico worked with a sports psychologist who helped Nico's who helped with Nico's performance. And he finished the season in ninth place with 20 points. Of course, his performance improvement helped with his reputation causing teams to be interested in Nico. There was rumors about um, him possibly joining McLaren, and they said no, and they kept on rejecting those offers. I mean, honestly, I think we all know why at that point in time they rejected McLaren because McLaren developed Lewis. So I don't. I think he didn't want to, like get that tangled but which is interesting because of what we're going to talk about a bit later with Mercedes that like whole dynamic but before we get to Mercedes let's finish out Williams and so in 2008 he was actually um, the more experienced driver in the team alongside Katsuki Najima, despite and despite a promising third place finish at the Australian GP, and actually fun fact on that one, um, if you in that cooldown room, he shared the podium with Lewis Hamilton, and the video of them bear hugging each other in that cooldown room is so cute and it speaks to what their relationship was like at the time but anyway of course just because he got that one podium in Australia didn't mean he was successful because his campaign was hindered by the underperforming FW30 and the lack of development leading to occasionally outper leading to occasionally be outperformed by his teammates, especially because he also made some errors himself. However, he adapted well to the ban on traction control, and his season highlight came with a second-place finish at the inaugural Singapore GP, and Rosberg ended up being 13th in the Drivers' Championship with 17 points. Now, in 2009, same teammates, but Rosberg um, endured physical challenges and he started losing weight to meet the increased minimum weight limit due to the introduction of the kinetic energy recovery system to the cars. And despite the F... FW31's early speed advantage, particularly with the double diffuser system, the team struggled to maintain the development pace throughout the season, 
Nonetheless, though, Nico showed consistency in finishing in the points and achieved a season-best fourth-place finish at the German and Hungarian GPs, and he amassed 34.5 points, securing a seventh-place finish. Before I start with the next era in the Nico Rosberg career in F1, I looked up that video that you mentioned in the cool-down room, Ito, and it's so wholesome and it's so cute. They're literally like in the biggest bear hug, like jumping around in circles, and they look like two little kids just like celebrating and being happy. Go check it out. It's a cute, wholesome moment. Definitely worth it. Anyways... Now, at the end of October 2009, it was confirmed that Nico would be leaving Williams at the end of the season. And only a week later, Mercedes joined the grid and had Nico on their driver lineup alongside seven-time world driver champion Michael Schumacher for 2010. Iconic. Nico finished the season in seventh place with 142 points. However, his performance this season helped his reputation again, as he was consistent and a fast driver. The driver pairing remained the same for the 2011 season. Then Nico continued to maintain his consistency and even started to um, have a higher grid place compared to his teammate at the start of races. So that caused some um, eyes to be turned and everything, or side eyes, I should say. And he finished that season in seventh place, earning a total of 89 points. Even though it was rumored that Nico would replace would be replacing Massa at Ferrari in November 2011, Nico has signed a contract extension, staying with Mercedes until after 2013. Nicky Lauda also began to advise Nico during the season, and despite having a strong start this year, he finished in ninth with 93 points. Honestly, the Schumacher-Rosberg matchup was a very weird yet fun one to watch especially um because if you there's so much like lore surrounding the whole thing that um makes it even more interesting such as schumacher playing mind games with nico um such as basically hogging the bathroom in the garage before they right before they had to go back on track to mess with Nico's concentration. And honestly, Schumacher playing those mind games with him taught him how to play mind games himself that he will use on his next teammate. But who is that next teammate? Well, it's Lewis. <laughs> so... Before 2013, it was announced that Lewis Hamilton would be joining Mercedes and replace the second time retiring Michael Schumacher. And despite being granted equal status within the teams, meaning Rosberg received no preferential treatment alongside Hamilton it still meant that, especially during preseason testing, Rosberg showed a keen interest in the technological development of the F1 W04 car. And he very much assisted in the development of the car, which makes sense because, as you recall, he got into Imperial College London for engineering 
turned that down, obviously. But like he has always had this very engineering heavy mind, which is one of the things that makes him very different to Hamilton from like from when they were kids, even from when they were kids. And throughout the season, Rosberg challenged Hamilton, often qualifying higher and finishing more frequently, likely due to that more analytical approach. And despite a minor controversy at the Malaysian GP regarding team orders, Rosberg went on to win the Monaco GP and the British GP, solidifying his reputation within the F1 community. Because oftentimes before, from what I've read, he was just seen as the son of, instead of a driver of his own. And in 2014, same lineup again, and Rosberg actually initially led the World Drivers' Championship standing, but faced stiff competition. I mean, it's Lewis Hamilton, so... And he ultimately finished second in the championship after a series of podium finishes and wins, notably at the Brazilian GP. And then right before 2015, he actually signed a contract extension um, with Mercedes once again. And despite some setbacks and retirements, errors, etc., he once again finished runner-up to Lewis. And he won races in places like Spain, Monaco, Austria, Mexico, Brazil, and Abu Dhabi. So it was very much a tight season for the two. However, um, because he kept finishing second to Hamilton before the 2016 season, he decided to truly focus on his physical and mental preparation in order to hopefully clench that championship, making various adjustments to improve his performance. He carried over his form from previous season, winning the first four races, and despite a mid-season dip and Hamilton using that to his advantage, Rosberg clenched the championship with a second place finish at the season ending Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. I want to know what kind of mental preparation this man did. Because if you work with a, psych- a sports psychologist and did this mental preparation, fun fact uh, one of the PGB girls is a master social work student. So I always get intrigued by little clinical stuff like that so it's like interesting to see how like it actually benefited his performance and a lot so it's like how can we maybe get this integrated more with other drivers to possibly help them out because i can just imagine the mind games and everything that can play with your performances and do well but i also think about like in relation to his driver pairing especially with lewis because that whole friendship dynamic and then of course we saw what happened during the last few years and everything in Mercedes, it's kind of like, I always wonder how that psyche played out, especially when the drama with Lewis was going on all while he was trying to win a championship. I mean, honestly, 
I remember reading, I can't remember where, but um, when he had that slump, the mid-season slump I mentioned, it was right around, like, it was right before summer break, and um, he would, like, shut himself into his apartment in Monaco, like, not talk to anyone, etc., to the point where Nicky Lauda, who, dare I say, was always more of a Lewis fan, um, actually showed up at his apartment and said, I'm going to help you. You're going to get through this. Which, A, shows in how bad of a place he was during that slump, but also how big of a person Nicky Lauda was. Rest in peace. But anyway, he won in 2016. But, as we said, it took a toll on him. And that's why, even though he signed a two-year contract extension with Mercedes during the 2016 season until 2018, Nico actually, even pre-Abu Dhabi, began considering retirement. Um, It basically kind of started happening right around, like, Japan. And he, like, discussed it with his wife Vivian because they got married at um they were married at the time and apparently he only discussed it twice with her and then was like okay I'm I'm out even if I don't win this like he decided this for himself before the race even started and he informed his wife and his manager Georges Notte of his decision before contacting Mercedes team principal Toto Wolf over the phone. Like he called Toto after the race. Um, and he did this over the phone because apparently he was very apprehensive of Toto's reaction. He basically didn't want to face him. I don't blame him because I would do the same exact thing. <laughs> I know, right? That man it's- wears all his emotions on his face and other ways that we can see yeah no thank you and also especially because he had just signed a two-year extension like really but anyway he publicly announced his publicly announced his retirement at the fia prize giving ceremony in vienna on december 2nd just five days after winning the championship and at the time he cited basically having achieved everything in his mind and also um, wanting to spend more time with his family as the main reasons for wanting to retire next to him being worried that his driving skills would not be up to par, say in 2017, 2018, what have you. And his decision made him the first reigning champion, actually, since Alain Prost in 1993 to retire. And, of course, that caused a huge silly season, or at least it caused somewhat of a shuffle because all of a sudden, um, Williams's Walter Bottas got put into his seat and then they had to do some shuffling at Williams. I wonder if after the Michael Schumacher accident, a lot of drivers started thinking about that whole spending time with their family 
perspective and everything wanting to value that time so anytime I see that I'm just like I wonder if they always think about him where it's like he yeah I don't want to get into that but I always just think about that just a little thing I wanted to share off my mind um but after retirement he used his platform to invest in positive change to the environment and society in short he became an eco-entrepreneur he began his venture by visiting Silicon Valley to test and observe the construction of electric and self-driving cars. I wonder if it's a certain uh, brand that has a lot of self-driving cars. And by July 2017, he Nico had visited the headquarters of the all-electric Formula E racing series. He was so fascinated by the series and the e-mobility movement that he became a longtime shareholder in the series by early 2018. I personally found that fascinating that he's like so into like that whole like electric, like environmentally friendly stuff, because I feel like a lot of people, I mean, we hear Seb and like Lewis mentioned all the time, but like for him to be like really invested in it and like fascinated, especially with like his engineering background and everything, it's like really cool. And it's like, let's see what, what you can do with all the knowledge you got. And it's, for me, it's all also always hilarious. Yes, we need the activism, like we need the involvement and everything. But at the same time, Formula One cars are, and Formula One as a whole, like the whole sport, like traveling um, all over the globe, like within like six months, like traveling all these distances back and forth, it's not eco-friendly. Not at all. So it's kind of an oxymoron to me at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah. I kind of giggle whenever they're like, go green or like a global change. And I'm like, you guys don't even like share the same damn jet for crying out loud for like flights. So like, come on. So, but I mean, that's- I guess they have to do something to offset that so they can sleep at night. Just like how we have to use paper straws. Anyway. And from his Formula E stuff to Team Rosberg. So um, in October 2017, Nico took on an advisory role at Team Rosberg. For those of you who don't know, Team Rosberg is a, how should I put this? Basically like a non-Formula One related racing team. And he offered guidance for its ADAC GT Master Sports Car Championship team in 2018. Additionally, he also joined the management team of racing driver Robert Kubica in September, assisting Kubica in his aspirations to return to Formula One following a severe 2011 rally accident that resulted in partial movement loss in his right arm. Basically, from what I recall, the accident almost took off his entire arm. However, after a while, basically after April 2018, um, Nico actually scaled back his involvement in Kubica's management to prioritize his business endeavors. However, that didn't mean he ended his F1 involvement because um, since 2018, he's been analyzing specific F1 races for Sky Sports F1 in the UK. 
RTL in Germany and Sky Italia in Italy. I mean, honestly, I I know not a lot of people love his commentary, but his commentary when he does it is oftentimes very spot on. And because of that, he has garnered a lot of praise. Additionally, same year, um, he also co-founded a Young Drivers Academy alongside karting mentor Dino Chisette, aiming to identify and support promising young go-kart drivers. So he's very much into not only bringing up the youth, but also other racing, like managing other racing series. At the same time, just because he's into racing still doesn't mean he wants to get back in the car himself because in April 2019, he actually declined an offer from Dieter Goss, the head of Audi Motorsports, to drive an RS5 DTM as a wild card entrant in the Deutsche Tourenwagen Masters DTM due to feeling insufficiently prepared to make a racing comeback. Which, honestly, I, I respect it. Because to have, like, the... Um, self-awareness? Yes. I was going to say, I, was, I literally was thinking, I was like, that's really, like, good self-awareness where he's, like, he doesn't feel like... I'm sure anyone would want to go back into racing after, like, being retired because, like, I can imagine, like, you can't take that out of your system instantly. But at least he's like, I want to, but probably not the best idea. Yeah, and, I mean, it... It, I mean, he's been so involved with other racing series and also as an F1 commentator that he's still connected to racing. And therefore, I think you would think that he would want to get back in the car if given the shot, but he's not, which will come up in a second again, by the way. So what did he do instead of getting in that DTM car? Well... In late 2020, um, he established Rosberg X Racing, leveraging elements of Team Rosberg, which coincidentally is KK Rosberg's DTM team, to compete in the all-electric SUV off-roading racing series Extreme E, starting in 2021. And like with his other eco-friendly entrepreneurship stuff, he mainly joined the series because of their um, desire to contribute to collective efforts against the impacts of climate change. And actually, Rosberg X Racing clinched the inaugural Extreme E champion constructors title with drivers Johan Christofferson and Molly Taylor and Molly Taylor additionally also secured the driver's championship which is amazing however they sadly couldn't repeat that feat in 2022 narrowly losing out by mere a mere two points to Lewis Hamilton's team x44 again I want to know everyone's feelings when all that happened to be a fly on the wall in both rooms, to hear the gloating of the X44 and the upsetness of Rosberg X Racing. I would love it. Yeah, honestly, that that whole 
potential dynamic. I mean, we don't know exactly what happened. Um, would be very interesting to know more about. But I'm sure both teams were very hush-hush about it. But from Extreme E to his other stuff, because he has more stuff to talk about. Um, He actually has a blog channel on YouTube, as well as a podcast called Beyond Victory, where he talks about human performance and development with people like former racing drivers, Alain Prost or Roman Grosjean, or Boyens Slot, the CEO of Ocean Cleanup, a company that aims to clean up ocean plastics. I would highly encourage you guys to go listen to his podcast. It's available basically pretty much anywhere. Sadly, there's only a few episodes. I want to say 10 because he hasn't posted anything, I want to say, in a year or two, which is kind of sad because it was always very entertaining. And from YouTube to philanthropy, because Rosberg also serves as the ambassador of several prominent organizations, including Mercedes-Benz, Laureos, UBS, and the tribute to Bambi Foundation, and of course, the electric car manufacturer Scheffler Group. And he actually also does like a few spokesperson bits, such as he did a anti-drunk driving, or rather an anti-drink and drive campaign for Heineken with his dad in 2020 basically promoting a zero alcohol beer that actually you have probably seen if you, or at least ads for, if you look at the sides of F1 tracks, because for a lot of them, you especially like, for example, Zandvoort and also the Belgian GP, um, Heineken's a huge sponsor. And he also did the Drive for Good initiative. And with that, he raised $160,900 or euros, actually, sorry, for the Labreos Sport for Good Foundation by donating 100 euros for every kilometer he led in Formula One races spanning from the 2015 Chinese GP to the season ending 2015 Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. So meaning his philanthropy actually was a thing even before he retired, which is very impressive, especially if we know how much time from Loan being an active athlete and all that takes up. And then the last thing I want to talk about, another philanthropic thing that he did in 2012 was he partnered with the Children AIDS Organization, Enhance for Kinder, a heart for children. And he raised funds for them through various events. And he also contributed to the Viva Con Agua de San Pauli charity, which focuses on providing in water and sanitation in developing countries. Additionally, also in June 2020, in response to the murder of George Floyd, Rosberg donated 10,000 euros to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, 
and as well as the educational fund to support its effort in combating racism and segregation. And of course, he also did a bunch of projects in his home country of Germany as well. Again, um, mostly focused on deforestation and stuff like that. Same with his initiatives in South America. The man definitely knows how to keep himself busy with a lot of different type of activities. Um, so I would need his psychologist number to see how he handles all that. Because I want to know. You were able to, it's just, it's amazing. And when you mentioned him donating to the NAACP, um, in response to the murder of George Floyd and everything like that, like it's like a new like kind of like level of respect for him, I guess, or it's like a new like light shed on him because you don't hear much about people making donations to those type of um, organizations or charities outside the U.S. So it's kind of like, oh, you you care. You actually like, you know, you want to make an example, use your platform for something good. And it's nice to see that he's actually doing and trying and everything. So I give him like a lot of credit for that. Um, yeah. And it's also funny with that particular donate um, donation, it actually, because I looked into it further because I was like, why is a German guy donating to an American organization for something that he's not really affected by? And actually, there was not a lot of publicity on it. So gives me another layer of respect for him because I'm like, I don't think this guy is doing it for publicity. I think this guy truly cares. He, yeah, exactly. He cares. And it, it's great. To, I like seeing stuff like that because it's just like, you're act, again, you're making that effort and you don't need to be uh, flaunting or gloating that you're helping that. Like, I mean, yeah, if you want to go for it, but it's kind of nice that he's just like, I'm going to do it and that's it. Uh, but I do love this little inside joke with the F1 fans about Nico Rosberg. For those who don't know, the Nico curse is when Nico himself so shows support on the paddock towards a team or specific driver by taking a selfie and ultimately sometimes like wishing them luck in said caption or something like that. Um, and this usually causes for said team or driver to have a not-so-fun race weekend. We've seen some people um, start off good at the top of the grid and then DNF or just have very questionable strategies. Um, so I think it's always like kind of fun to see how that plays out whenever we see something pop up. And we'll be curious to see if that happens this year. But I think it was broken by Max last year. It was definitely broken by Max. Then again, what curse does Max not break? I mean, he also broke the first race curse. So for those of you who don't know, basically the first race curse is that if you win the first race, you will come second in the championship, which rang true from 2017 until... 2023 being when Max won it. And actually, fun fact, Nico in 2016 was the last person to not be affected by the curse, pre-Max. Nico's everywhere. He's but, everywhere and he has powerful powers. <laughs> that he, I don't know if he's aware of such powers. Probably not. But 
it's actually funny that you mention the whole him taking selfies in front of garages or or like in front of cars um, because it because it got so far to the point where McLaren put up papers saying no Nico Rosberg selfies with like a picture of Nico and like the no sign on over it. Hilarious as fuck. Hilarious. Just hilarious. But also it goes to show how powerful he is. I just love when Twitter has like a heyday over the selfies because they're just like, great, this is going to happen. And I remember when he put, I think it was like um, outside of like Lewis's garage. So you saw like his name and like the picture and everything. And we were like, oh no, we know he like probably probably means well because that is still his best friend at the end of the day or like was his best friend. So it's just like, no. So that I remember everyone's reaction to that. Or when he took a selfie um, with all the cars on the grid in Monza. Remember that one? And everyone was like, shit, everyone's going to do it. Nah, sorry. Didn't mean to swear that one. Basically, everyone was like, oh, no, he, everyone's going to DNF. And then we have that messed up start at the beginning of Monza last year. So it kind of happened. So, so it's just hilarious. We we were all upset about that Monza curse being being broken, and amongst other stuff. But Max is a curse breaker. We're upset that every curse seems to be broken as of last year because Max just proved us all wrong, and it's very upsetting. Because I did actually love those curses. It gave They're us fun. something to look forward to. Yeah, it gave us some lore because. <laughs> If you guys don't know by now, I love me some good lore. So, on the topic of lore. um, Actually, um, remember when it was announced earlier this month that Lewis was going to leave Mercedes at the end of 2024 and move to Ferrari for 2025? Well, someone on Twitter um, started the rumor that they were going to bring back Nico. And and it got so out of hand, like with graphics and everything, that um, actually he did an interview with Süddeutsche Zeitung, um, a big German newspaper, um, like last week, I think it was, where they asked him about it. And he's like, no, no. And I'm like, yeah, of course not. He's been out of the car since 2017. And also he turned down that DTM wildcard entry. Like people are just not thinking sometimes. Granted, it was fun. Like when I first saw the graphic, I was like, this would be funny. Like this would be the chaos Nico is known for, but at the same time, I was like, guys, be realistic. Granted, that Lewis move was not on my 2024 or 2025 bingo card. It was on no one's, but my favorite, like, it was like a meme on Twitter um, where it was like someone waking up surprised, like, 
fresh and everything. And it's like Nico Rosberg, like waking up to the news that he's a Mercedes 2025 driver. <laughs> and it was like someone just like confused, like on what's going on. And I was like, the poor guy is just probably just like trying to relax, do his like million and one activities. And all of a sudden he's driving for Mercedes again. <laughs> I, yeah, that's funny. Especially because um, there was also this thing where after news was announced, because if you guys don't know, Nico is a person that rarely does not comment on something happening in F1. But weirdly enough, after loose news, he was very quiet. And that interview I just mentioned that happened last week was actually the first time he addressed Lewis's move. So, of course, everyone was speculating, why is he being quiet? Did he know? Like, how does he feel? Like, it's his old friend. Like, I mean, to the point, like, like, it was just wild. wild. No, but basically, so him... Him being quiet was very unusual about the thing, the move. And of course, that spurred up a lot of rumors, like whether he knew, like how he felt about it, because he is known as the guy that beat Lewis Hamilton in equal machinery. Um, and it was just like that whole thing was hilarious to watch. And also, um, on top of that just being hilarious to watch on its own, there's an added layer because in, I think it was Monza, I think it was Monza this year, uh, he was commentating on Skytalia, and he was asked about Lewis. And he was like, yeah, he's still my my best friend in my heart. And I'm like, what the hell? So adding that component to the whole him staying quiet for the rumors is hilarious. Yes. Well, I love talking about Nico and learning all things about him. We definitely can talk all night. And to close out the episode, we have a driver quote for you. And from who else? The main man, Nico. No matter how good it a driver you are, you have to have the right car and the right team behind you in order to succeed. And I completely agree. Now, thank you for joining us in the paddock. I'm glad to say we can officially see F1 race again with watching testing currently. Um, Anyways, I love doing these spotlight episodes, especially a legend like Nico. What are your thoughts? Let us know on our socials everywhere we are Paddock Girls Podcast, except Twitter where you can find us at Paddock Girls Pod. And also don't forget to share, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Catch you next time in the paddock. Have a good one. Bye. 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 Goodbye.